Today on Peace Talks Radio, we've sampled opinions from 13 people, all stakeholders in the discussion about what to do to improve the relationship between the police and the citizens they serve. If you look back at when the police were first created, there wasn't quite the expectation that they would reduce or eliminate crime. We're getting to a point where it's us against them. And we don't say that about anybody else in our communities but police right now. I believe that only a small portion of society really truly believes we're the enemy. I think for the most part, society does support us. And no matter what happens, uh, we're going to put on the uniform every day and do our best on the streets. What emotional intelligence does is it trains uh, police officers how to learn how to control their state of mind in these emergency situations and on everyday situations. We explore solutions to the strained relationship between citizens and police. Today on Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. This is Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. And I'm series producer Paul Ingalls. In some communities in the United States, the relationship is frayed between law enforcement officers and the citizens they are sworn to serve. Some high-profile police shootings or overly aggressive police encounters with citizens captured on video by police cams or citizens with cameras have only intensified the tension in some places. Since one of our goals on this program is to provide a forum that might lead to nonviolent conflict resolution strategies, we've sampled opinions from 13 people, all stakeholders in the issue, and asked each what they thought might help most to improve the relationship between the police and the citizenry. Then we followed up with a few questions for each as well. We've squeezed as many as we could in this hour-long version of our program. There's much more online, our complete interviews with each guest, on our website, peacetalksradio.com. That's peacetalksradio.com. We begin, though, with this fundamental suggestion of changing how we think about the job of the police in our communities. My name is Steve Herbert. I'm a professor of law, societies, and justice at the University of Washington in Seattle. If there were one thing that I think that could happen that would improve relationships between the police and the communities with whom they work, it would be to reduce the expectation that the police can meaningfully uh, reduce the incidence of crime. But we expect them to do that, and, and they expect themselves to do that. Uh, and as a consequence, they are compelled to intrude fairly heavily into people's personal lives. So policies like stop and frisk or investigatory stops of motorists are all motivated by the police's desire to catch individuals uh, who they suspect of engaging in criminal wrongdoing, possessing drugs, possessing guns, or otherwise engaging in criminal activity. But they do that in a way that compels them to intrude rather more brusquely and heavily into people's lives than they typically appreciate. And so those uh, tactics, while motivated by the, the laudable desire to, to reduce crime, actually have the capacity of frequently alienating member, many members of the public uh, from the police. Another component of that, of, of, of the police's expecting uh, themselves to reduce crime, is that they expect their authority to be respected whenever they assert it. Because if people are unwilling to respect their authority, then they can't effectuate their arrests that begin the process by which they believe they, they contribute to the reduction of crime. Uh, so whenever uh, someone resists police authority, uh, oftentimes the police respond 
in an overly aggressive fashion and things escalate to a position where we see uh, unfortunate instances of individuals dying as we've seen across the country. So if, if we alleviated the police of this uh, expectation that they could meaningfully reduce crime, they might be less inclined to be so uh, intrusive, they might be less inclined to respond strongly when they feel like their authority is challenged, uh, and they could work uh, with the community more productively to create situations in which uh, healthy communities can develop such that the root causes of crime might be more meaningfully addressed. A lot of what would be involved here is a cultural shift on the part of both the public uh, and the police to see the police's role differently in terms of the role that they can play in, in building healthy communities. So it would require uh, government officials, for example, beginning to define situations in distressed communities differently, beginning to explore other policy options, and beginning to have conversations with the police and the public about a, a different kind of role for the police. Actually, if you look back at when the police were first created, uh, there wasn't quite the expectation that they would reduce or eliminate crime. That's, that's a phenomenon that developed um, about 100 years ago with the creation of the so-called professional model for American policing. But if you look back at histories of police in the 1850s or 1870s, uh, they were more of a kind of a social service agency, tried to find supports for people in need and used their police headquarters as a place for people to sleep off a night of excessive drinking or that sort of thing. So, uh, and, and it is the case that the police oftentimes do perform a social work role uh, because they do get called to a lot of instances of behavior that aren't really criminal in nature, and so they, they respond to them as best they can. So it's not as if other roles for the police have not existed in the past, and it's not as if these other roles uh, don't occur in the present moment. It's just that they are oftentimes overshadowed, I think, too dramatically and unfortunately by this emphasis on fighting crime. Steve Herbert from the University of Washington. This is a serious question. What do you see as the role of superhero movies in this conversation? I think I, mean, I think one of the places where you know we we get our outsized expectations of the police are, is is from the popular media, not just superhero movies, but almost any cop show that we see typically results in the arrest of a bad guy and the presumption that uh, he will then face uh, the appropriate punishment in the criminal justice system. We don't like stories of the police not uh, being uh, heroic rescuers of good people from bad people. And so, yeah, I think you're, you're right to suggest that the myth of the invincible and effective police officer is one that uh, gets pretty wide airing in our, our popular, popular culture. The characteristic of a good crime narrative is that there's a bad guy out there that, that needs to be caught, and there's a kind of a fairly simple good-evil dichotomy that, that gets perpetuated. And a certain view of the criminal is, is developed in the process, but the reality is that most criminals aren't like that. Most criminals aren't necessarily career criminals. They're not necessarily evil people. They just happen to fall in with the wrong crowd, or they're they're a victim of a particular set of circumstances. And so they are a lot less evil than the popular culture suggests. Uh, and, and they typically arise out of particular sort of neighborhood characteristics and neighborhood dynamics that, that are a little bit more complicated than the good evil narrative uh, suggests. And that's another place where I think the conversation could benefit from 
a hefty dose of realism is to think seriously about who exactly are the criminals in our midst, to think about why it is they're engaging in that behavior, and to think about paths other than processing through the, them through the criminal justice system that might be more effective in helping them craft a different life trajectory. Hi, I'm Zachary, Councilman, City of Cleveland, Ward 2. If you look at what was done in Cleveland, where I'm a councilman at, we, we looked at and evaluated the, the, the way that we're policing first and foremost. Because you can't come up with a solution unless you understand and believe you've got a problem. So I think we're coming to the realization that we have a problem in the way that police are policing communities, especially those communities of color and people within those communities first and foremost. And then I think that the other thing that we need to look at is that the community policing element of it, that police officers just can't be in the community. They got to be of the community. And what I'm saying is they just can't ride around in police cars. They just can't go from cause to cause. They just can't be on priority calls when 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 a 911 call comes about. They've got to be in the, those communities morning, noon and night doing what all other individuals in those communities do. From the people that are working in the meat shops, from the people that are working in the corner stores, to the people that are working uh, just just normally in the community as a whole, from the pastors, from churches and things like that, the librarians. And what has happened is in these communities uh, is that the police is, we're getting to a point and already at a point to where it's us against them. And we don't say that about anybody else in our communities, but police right now. And we got to bring down that wall. We got to bring down the barriers and we got to bring down those obstacles that are separating the police from the people that they are supposed to protect and serve. And when we do that and you go into a more robust, aggressive community policing plan, I could then say to you that things are going to get better. Because then you see police officers as the same way you see a mailman in the, in, the, in the community, the same way you see the butcher in the community, the same way you see a librarian in the community. You see them as a necessary person to make up the entire community. But right now, we only use the police officers in our community when you call 911, when there's an emergency in the community. And, and, it, and it can't be. Well, Zach, when did it start to turn away from that model? Because I think some people will remember who are old enough, community policing, the cop on the beat, you know, the cop was a pal in the neighborhood. Maybe it's an Andy of Mayberry fantasy, but it's uh, something that I think the older folks listening can sort of remember about their old time police force. Uh, when did it start to shift away? It started to shift away, in my opinion, when we started going towards stats, you know, how many crimes are, and I'm not saying it's not important to say that, how many crimes how are, we, uh, are we solving? What's our homicide rates look like? Uh, what does the, the burglary rates look like? What do felonious assaults look like? And are they going up? Are they going down? Where are we at? And we started going towards stats and calls first and foremost. Instead of saying, you know how we can solve crime? Let's talk to the people in those communities. They know where the guns are at. They know where the criminals are at. They, were, they know where the drug houses are at. They, were, they know where the individuals that are doing bad things to good people are at. 
So how do you get that information? You get that information by those people in those communities believing that we're on the same team, that we're all working together. And when you and when they all think that we're on the same team and we're all working together, then what happens? We all are looking for the same goal, getting the people in those communities that are being most affected by those crimes to help you solve those crimes. And when they don't believe that you're working with them and they have the us against them mentality, then you're out there working on your uh, alone and in too many parts of our cities around the nation, that's what's happening. All right, Zach, in Cleveland, does that represent a large change in terms of training existing force and training new law enforcement officers? Is that going to be a big turnaround in how things have been done? In the city of Cleveland, it's going to be a, a sea change in the sense that in the Department of Justice report, it said that in the city of Cleveland, they not only don't do community policing, they don't even know how to do community policing. So when you're not doing the fundamental foundation of what policing is across the nation, and that's what the and that's not Zach Reed saying that. It's not some opinion. That's the Department of Justice DOJ report saying that Cleveland doesn't even know how to do community policing. So now in our consent decree, it clearly spells out that they have to not now start to do community policing. They literally have to start writing down when they're outside the car, when they're talking to residents, when they're going to community meetings, when they're getting information from the citizens in the community. Are they playing with the young people in the community? What are they doing to interact with the people in the community? So now it becomes a part of the overall consent decree. So now that is a huge change for the city of Cleveland. But let me tell you, there are three things that I believe, three things in our consent decree, I believe that all police forces need to start doing. First of all, they need to do community policing. Second of all, they need to have non-biased policing uh, protocols in place. And then thirdly, they need to start utilizing technology. Those three things, and those are three things that that the DOJ report says has to be done in our consent decree. Now, accountability has been a big part of the national discussion, too, in individual police forces. Uh, Doing something about the uh, trend toward uh, protecting each other, protecting your fellow cop and not telling on the cop who's not doing a good job or that sort of thing. Is that a problem in Cleveland? And what path to improvement is there for that? It's not only in Cleveland, it's across the nation. I think the president put it right when he talked in the Rose Garden he said point blank that police officers, I mean, uh, uh, the, the unions, the police unions have got to understand that police officers are like any other profession, that they make mistakes and they do things wrong. And when they make mistakes and they do things wrong, that police unions and the head of those police unions can't come up and say, hey, you know, hey, we're going to still stand with our man, so to speak. You know, it can't be that way. When they make mistakes, they make mistakes. And the president put it right. You know, elected officials make mistakes. And, and, and there are a people along the litany that make mistakes. All you got to do to post a child for what that, that answer to that question is South Carolina. Look what happened in South Carolina. We had a police officer who literally was fabricating a story where he was literally saying that this person was going for the gun and this and that and in between. And I had to shoot him. 
and and what and what happened before the video came out everybody was running to that police officer saying that we're going to stand with that police officer as soon as the video came out suddenly everybody started running away from the police officer so you know you, you got to say that we we want to give the police officer the benefit of the doubt but we also got to say we need to see everything before we jump to the conclusion that police officers have done something wrong or that police officers didn't do anything wrong. Police officers are like all the rest of us. We're human and we all make mistakes. And at the end of the day, we've got to come up with a solution that says that when police officers make mistakes, we got to call them on it. When they do good, we got to say thank you for doing good. But we can't have this blanket approach that police unions and head of police unions say that police don't ever make mistakes. And that's part of the training regimen too? I mean, that's the overhaul in training to include that conversation as well? I think that's a culture. I think that's got to be a culture. How do you approach that then? Well, I mean, that's one of those things where the union's got to come to the reality that the way that they're doing business is not going to be the way that we do business going forth. My name is Karen Fisher. I retired from the Albuquerque Police Department two and a half years ago, and I had a 25-year uh, career in the Albuquerque Police Department as a civilian employee. That went from strategic planning, project management, and in the end towards uh, community building and how do we engage our community in being, in working together to address crime and public safety issues. So as a community, our typical interaction with police is they come into our homes or we interact with them when things are bad. And now we're trying to move from the idea of how do we take that interaction that is typically negative or something that's a bad thing in our life into something that we work productively together. And to be able to achieve that, we've got to change the way that we think of the role of public safety in a community. Law enforcement cannot be a community's sole solution to crime and public safety. We can't rely on only them to solve our problems of being burglarized, of drug dealing. How do we as a community come together and address those issues? You have to think maybe away from crime to public safety. What is public safety? Ask yourself, what, what makes you feel safe? To some people, it's education. If we don't have a literate populace, then how does that population get jobs and be productive? So public safety is impacted by a quality education. Public safety is impacted by poverty. Public safety is impacted by race relations. So it isn't just crime. It's coming together towards what we define. And each neighborhood, each block, might have a different definition of what's their biggest public safety issue. In many communities, it could be, are my kids safe walking to school? Right. Whose responsibility is that? Is it the schools? Is it the neighbors? I mean, that's a safety issue. The lights are out on my street. Is that a police response? Or is that a uh, government response? Or in Albuquerque, that's actually PNM um, who oversees the, the lights on the street or the ones who are responsible for it. If it's safety is at a park, who manages that park? It's parks and recreation. If individuals who, who are living in homelessness are using a park to be able to camp there, 
because they have no place to be, whose responsibility is it to address the issue of homelessness? It's not the police departments, but it's a public safety issue. It's homeless service providers. It's a poverty issue. It could be a mental illness issue. It could be a PTSD issue. Why are individuals living homelessly? Why do they lose their jobs? So it's not just crime. It's all kinds of stuff. And how do we define who we draw into the solution and we don't rely on police to get that homeless person out of the park, that homeless person is going to go someplace else. How do we provide a solution such as heading home that Albuquerque has um, that deals with the underlying condition as to why that person is living homelessly? To me, when that's the realm we have to work towards if we're going to really get to the idea of community building and a better relationship with law enforcement is change our expectations of what we want them to do. Say uh, someone in the police department is, is catching the broadcast, a couple of steps that would encourage that side to create this synergy that would uh, help the issue of strained relations between citizens and law enforcement. Um, I think if you talk to the command staff, the administration, you would get, oh yes, we want to do that, and then they would do the things they've always done, which is try to get neighborhood associations or people to, to engage. But the difficulty is the frontline officer who says, I don't have the time to do that. I go from call to call to call to call. I'm working overtime. I'm forced into working overtime. On my days off, I have to go to court. Is it logistically possible to make what seems like a common sense shift in the way policing is done? The way, only reason it's not logistically possible is the willingness not to do it, to not try. You've got to try. Um, you've got to rethink the way you deploy your resources. But the person you see in the marked vehicle is a job is to answer calls for service. The complication is there's fewer officers but we still want a police officer to respond when we call. The number of officers working a shift in a part of a city could be 20, 10, I don't know. I mean, I don't know that answer, but it used to be very low. How do those frontline officers find the time to do it? Instead of saying they're going to do this, ask them. How, if we want to build a better community and give you more time, two hours a week, to work with your community, how could you do that and still meet the responsibility of, of uh, answering calls for service? They're probably the ones who have the solution. I've never answered a call for service. I don't know what's entailed in it, but I know that the people who were expecting to make the change have to be just like the community is. The law and frontline officers have to be part of how we define that solution. That's Karen Fisher, who retired after 25 years as a citizen employee with the Albuquerque Police Department and then Cleveland City Councilor Zach Reed just before her. We've asked a number of people for their best ideas about how to improve the, in some places, strained relationship between citizens and their police forces. And in a moment, we'll hear from some rank-and-file police officers for their impressions when Peace Talks Radio continues right after this break.
I'm Paul Ingalls, series producer for Peace Talks Radio, the program about peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. We're online with all the shows in our series dating back to 2002 at peacetalksradio.com, where you can also sign up for a monthly newsletter and our podcast. Today's show is about improving the relationship between police and the citizens they serve. We're presenting a sampling of answers to the question, what do you think would help most to improve the sometimes frayed relationship? As any reporter will tell you, it's hard to get street cops to talk about their world. Few are given permission to talk directly to reporters. I was diverted to public information officers or just turned down in my efforts on this program. But in May 2015, Albuquerque television station KOB-TV and anchorman Tom Joles managed to assemble seven officers from the Santa Fe and Albuquerque City Police Force and two deputies from the Bernalillo County Sheriff's Staff to talk. Thanks to Tom Joles and KOB-TV for permission to excerpt their session. Albuquerque Police Officer John Garcia. Tom, I would add that respect is a, is a huge thing. Um, I work the streets a lot. I'm a bike officer, so I'm out on the streets a lot. I think that's the hardest part is when people come up to you. Yes, we get a lot of thank yous and good jobs, but at times we get a lot of uh, go away. We don't want to deal with you. Um, they look at us as the enemy, which we are here just to help and serve our communities. In your opinion, what needs to be done to heal this divide that exists. Officer Brian Worley of the Albuquerque Police. I believe that there's a cooperative team effort that we have to take with the community. Um, Law enforcement can't be everywhere at any given time. Um, When we're dealing with a situation, a lot of the times they are the eyes and ears to the community. And it takes that cooperation with the community to come to bring things to light for us to be able to step in and help out. Um, Open lines of communication. Open lines of communication. Anything else? Bernalillo County Deputy Aaron Schwartz. Well, no matter what happens, whether whether it's on the news or the riots or anything like that, um, I believe that only a small portion of society really truly believes we're the enemy. I think for the most part, society does support us. And no matter what happens, uh, we're going to put on the uniform every day and do our best on the streets. Anything else? Santa Fe Police Officer Gardner Finney. Citizens Academy. The people who participate in that in Santa Fe we often get activists who are not family and friends of police officers. Family and friends of cops really kind of know how police are and that we're decent folks. But activists will often do the Citizens Academy, do a ride-along and see what we deal with. And by the end of that day of spending a shift with an officer, it's a huge change in someone's perception. And that's, that's helpful. Albuquerque Police Officer Shermaine Carter. And just to kind of add to that, I think increasing the public's awareness just as to what a police officer does. We have a multitude of hats that we wear on a daily basis. We are the mama, we are the daddy, we are the counselor, we are a safe person that a child talks to. So there's a lot to us. One last question. The media. How's the reporting on law enforcement in this state? Again, John Garcia with APD. I'll just add real quick, uh, a lot of times I think media dictates a lot of what's going on in the society and the public and what the public eye sees. So I think a lot of that can be bad or good, as we're doing now. Bernalillo County Deputy Autumn Knees. Also, it's, it's not compared to the entirety of, of police encounters. You know, typically they, one awful issue is com- not compared to the many positive encounters that we deal with or the encounters in general that we deal with even traffic stops, those are encounters as well. Again, APD's Brian Worley. When we're called to deal with a situation, things that are reported to law enforcement professionals, it turns into a fluid and dynamic 
rapidly evolving situation. Um, it does take some time to kind of bring everything in and decide how things are going when it comes to that type of a situation. So media will show the end result of what happened at X, Y, and Z, not showing the entirety of A, B, and C of what was done first before it ended in the situation and how it ended. And again, Bernalillo County Deputy Aaron Schwartz. What's also tough, too, is anyone that's not in law enforcement, um, it's difficult for them to even have a you know perspective just because they are not trained on our tactics. And so it is, you know, in a sense, it is a very unbiased opinion, and it is reporting, but a lot of the times, you know, it's, it's misunderstood what we do and why we do things. All right. I want to thank all of you for being here. Again, thanks to Tom Joles and KOB-TV News for the excerpt from their report. There's a link to that entire session on our website, peacetalksradio.com, on our June 2015 episode page. Next in our Opinions Sampler on improving the relationship between citizens and police is Jim Ginger, CEO of Public Management Resources in South Carolina. A federal court has approved Ginger as the monitor overseeing the Albuquerque Police Department's compliance with a DOJ settlement agreement that aims to curb a pattern of excessive force, according to a DOJ report. Ginger could talk to us about anything but the APD case in particular, saying that, in general, compliance agreements focus on three areas. It starts with good policy. It continues with good training, and it continues with good supervision. Uh, and good discipline. Those are the pillars of a good, pro- a good policing process. Uh, it sounds almost too simple to be true, but that is the approach. It's been the approach in virtually every one of these USDOJ uh, consent decrees and settlement agreements. Well, Jim, you set up a good, what I would call, scaffolding for the process, saying that programs work with administration, work with hiring, work with training. For example, are you finding empathy training underrepresented in training regimens? Absolutely. I, I, think, I think you'd be hard-pressed to find uh, training on empathy and, and uh, working that sort of softer side of policing uh, in most American police agencies right now. That's not something that's, that's high on the list. Okay, so that's a a big proposed change in a training regimen. It's a proposed change in a policy emphasis and a proposed change in training protocol. Right. And then the the operative question is, uh, how do we get there? I mean, I guess first, how do we know we need to do it? And I think the answer to that one is you always need to do it. That should be the first step because we can avoid a lot of all the negative outcomes uh, if we if we simply learn to listen and understand, so if 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 we're not you know if we're not tuned into that we're not going to train it. If we don't train it, we're not going to get it. If we don't get it, then we're right back to where we were with issues of of use of force, deadly force, those sorts of things. When you have to bring change to a department, let's say in the hiring process first, uh, what are some of the bullet points, the most important things that are generally lacking, that uh, are generally in need of change? Uh, The answer is we fail to do good, solid, comprehensive background investigations uh, to make sure, A, uh, that this is not someone who's had six other law enforcement jobs, lasted two and a half years in each, and now he's, he's here trying to get a law enforcement job in our community. That's a huge red flag. The, the problem 
actually turns out to be that the argument is made, particularly among small police departments, you know, we don't have the time to do a good background investigation. We don't have the resources. And the response to that is you don't have the resources not to because if, if you engage in a practice of negligent hiring and get one or two or three officers on your agency who've been either terminated or allowed to resign uh, in lieu of termination in two or three other police departments before you hired them, that's, that's a negligent hire. And in your, as a city or a town, you're uh, liable for that officer's actions, particularly the ones that are uh, similar to what they've been either fired for in the past or allowed to resign in lieu of termination for in the past. Recently here in South Carolina, we had a $97 million jury verdict against a small town for negligent hiring. Uh, they had hired an officer who had had uh, seven previous law enforcement employments and been fired from all but one of them or allowed to resign in lieu of termination. And the jury was so disgusted with that negligence that they, they found for the, the plaintiff in that case to the tune of $97 million. So, Yeah, $97 million can pay for a lot of resources and positions that can do background checks. Exactly. And so there's really no reason not to do these things, but there are 97 million good reasons to do them. Well, and again, it strikes me is that it's easier to uh, track a candidate's uh, technical skill with uh, firearms or with time on a beat or in a department uh, it's more difficult to track a person's uh, emotional map. That's true. Although, we, you know, we do have uh, even pen and pencil tests now that will at least give you a clue. And then seven phone calls in that particular instance would have triggered that as well. So it's not like it's uh, that difficult to do. And then it strikes me that uh, recruiting and hiring on the administrative level really sets the stage for everything. Well, that's that's another another issue entirely. I mean, nothing nothing says competency like good leadership. But then you you need city councils and city executives, town councils and town executives, who are willing to actually search out the best qualified candidates and and bring them into that executive level when they're searching for a new chief of police. Uh, the flip side of that is that doesn't that doesn't accrue to uh, county sheriff's departments; those are those are elected positions. So you know you get in you get into a whole other set of issues with that in terms of hiring the best folks. But from a, a municipal or town police perspective, uh, which is where we tend to have most of our problems, it's a commitment on the part of the city council. It's a commitment on the part of the mayor's office or whoever the chief executive of the city is to truly find the best people, not the people who are best politically connected. Uh, not the, the people who we know best, but the best people we can find. The process of hiring a police chief in the United States today is highly competitive from, from a couple of different angles. Uh, if you advertise for a chief of police in South Carolina, you're probably going to get 150 applications. So it's not, it's not a lack of competent, that's not to say all 150 are competent, but it's not a lack of competent candidates. It's the, the willingness and the ability to, to winnow those out to the three or four or five who are 
obviously the best qualified and then the wherewithal and the fortitude to pay for those folks because they're becoming uh, like any other CEO position. They're, they're being, uh, for the most part, they're very well compensated in the United States. So it, it means that if you want a really good chief of police, you're going to have to be willing to pay for him or her uh, to come on board um, because they, they no longer work for forty-five dollars or $50,000 a year in most cases. Average salaries for chiefs of police in the last decade or so have, have really skyrocketed. And at some cities are indeed pay, paying signing bonuses for the best candidate, which I think is good news because that means we're getting good folks in the right spots. Well, that leads me to my final question then, Jim Ginger. Uh, some of our guests have painted a picture of overall decline in law enforcement relations with the communities over the last uh, specifically 10, maybe 20 years. But do you see the place that we're in now as a hopeful place uh, to craft change? I think it absolutely is. We know more about this issue now than we ever have. Um, City councils are becoming more and more bright by the day. And quite frankly, they're getting tired of paying all these. um, I mean, forget about the 97 million, the $200,000 settlements and the $200,000 jury awards are are routine day-to-day business anymore. You were hearing from Jim Ginger, CEO of Public Management Resources in South Carolina, and the man appointed to monitor the Albuquerque Police Department's compliance with the Department of Justice Settlement Agreement to improve the police force. More ahead as we sample other opinions of various stakeholders in the effort to improve the relationship between citizens and the police. Today on Peace Talks Radio. More after a break. It's Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution, online at peacetalksradio.com. I'm Paul Ingalls. More now from our collection of voices with ideas on how to improve the relationship in our communities between citizens and the police force. I'm Greg Seville. I'm a criminologist and a police trainer. I'm also a former police officer. I um, reside out of Seattle, Washington. And I've been involved with police training and, and research as a criminologist about police training for about 25 years. The more the police and community know each other by personal name and work together directly on like-minded problems and solving problems together, the more they do that, the better the relations are going to be. If that's the first place I'd go. The second place I'd go is we need to seriously retool and rethink the training systems for police. The training regimes are obsolete, out of date. And I think they lead to many of the problems. So 
We have just written a book about this whole problem called You in Blue, and I think that's the way we need to go. Well, tell me more about that then. Tell me more about where the training needs to go, where maybe it hasn't been going in recent years. Our approach is to say, look at the training methodologies, look at the way training is done, and you discover a rigid, uh, militaristic, uh, PowerPoint-driven, sage-on-the-stage style of learning, sprinkled with war stories and sprinkled with some scenarios that is obsolete and far out of date, and it leads to more problems than it's worth. And I was always intrigued in reading some of your materials online about an emphasis on emotional intelligence. Well, we introduced emotional intelligence about 12 years ago, and through the work we've done in emotional intelligence training, it's utterly revolutionized the way we approach learning and teaching. How this works is if a police officer is in an emergency situation and they're responding to a crisis, say a police chase, where there's a uh, high-speed pursuit and there's a lot of adrenaline, what happens uh, chemically is there's a fight-and-flight response, and, and adrenaline fires inside uh, the officer's brain, and you get very anxious, uh, very nervous, and what happens is a lot of the access you have to the normal con- conflict resolution and problem-solving strategies is minimized because you're focused on simply driving the car, getting to the scene, and so forth. Those are the kinds of things that, that lead to trouble later on because you're still driven by the emotions of the, of the, of the event, and no surprise when you look on these candid television images of, of use of force, they're happening at these, these peak moments. What emotional intelligence does is it trains uh, police officers how to learn how to control their state of mind in these emergency situations and on everyday situations by learn, teaching them how to focus on self-awareness, how to, how to calm themselves, how to use breathing methods, and all those kinds of things that are traditionally thought of as soft skills and are, are often demeaned or downplayed in the academy training versus the hard skills, which is the, the tactical training and the shooting types of things. But the truth of the matter is the majority of these situations are driven by the soft skills. They're driven by the interactions before, the state of mind of the officer before. Emotional intelligence finally addresses that uh, in training. Now, despite what we've seen in recent years uh, on this, are you hopeful that uh, some of the strains and stressors uh, between citizens and their law enforcement organizations can be improved? I know they can be improved. Here's my worry. I fear that there is a diverging culture in the law enforcement community toward what I call the combat cop approach. That is the militarization, the heavy military uh, equipment, the easy acceptance of equipment that may or may not be effective in, in, in resolving crime. And the combat cop attitude is in direct contradiction to the work that many police reformers have been working on for decades called community policing and problem-solving policing. So the problem-solving community cop on, on one side and the combat cop on the other is a terrible divide. And, and, and I fear that we're losing ground for one in the sake of another. So what I, what I would like to see, I would like to see the, the, the everyday patrol officer, the everyday rookie, the everyday uh, academy instructor see that these two things are, are not incompatible, that you do need tactical response in emergency situations. That's always going to be the case. But that the primary goal of the police is to, is, to, is to preserve the peace and to be the guardians of the community, to work with the community. If that's the overall goal, then it shouldn't be hard to figure out a way out of this mess. Hi, I'm Glenn Ivey. Uh, I am the former state's attorney uh, of Prince George's County, and I'm a former federal prosecutor as well. 
Well, I mean, I guess it depends on the community, but I think there are communities where the relations are strained or worse. I think, um, you know, there have been a number of approaches that have been outlined. Uh, Professor David Kennedy and Tracy Mears and others have talked about um, more direct outreach. Uh, you know, community policing is, is, is kind of part of that approach, but I think it needs to go beyond that. So, you know, more than just sort of being in the same beat every day, I think there needs to be actual interaction. Uh, between police department at the foot patrol level or squad car patrol level and leaders in those communities uh, on a daily basis. Uh, and I also think we need to move away from policies, policing policies that are, um, you know, casting way too broad in that. The, the stop and frisk stuff that they were doing up in New York uh, just up until recently, I think you, you ended up getting a lot of innocent people who were just minding their own business really kind of caught up in the criminal justice system. And I think it really ended up turning a lot of people into enemies of the police department and, and you know, sort of government and uh, community rule in general, and, and, you know, because they're being treated like criminals even when they aren't. And, and, and so I think you have to try and find ways to mitigate that sort of, you know, pushing away effect by, you know, overly aggressive policing. You know, at the same time, you know, when, when communities are having a lot of criminal activity, they always ask for more uh, police help. So, that there, you know, there needs to be a balance. And I think, I think most communities will understand that. They want to have the police there. They just don't want them to be overly aggressive. And they don't want to be treated like criminals, even when they're just minding their own business, raising their, their kids, going to work, living their lives. So let's break it down a little bit to talk a little bit about first law enforcement. So what does it mean then if you're trying to take steps that would be considered reform in some police departments where they are having trouble? Well, I mean, I think there's a mindset change that needs uh, to take place in, in some de uh, police departments. They're, they're just sort of uh, kind of read and react. You know, they're, you get a, a, a 911 call and you go respond to the call and then you go to the next call and um, you know, in a lot of instances, that's driven by, you know, limited resources. But, you know, I think there has to be uh, an effort to, to sort of create space for proactive policing, getting out there when, you know, even when a, there hasn't been a 911 call, for example, uh, or there's no emergency taking place and just interacting with the community on a different level, uh, on a non-emergency level. And, and I think that, that that's a good step in the right direction. And there are other things that could be done. You know, sometimes it's, I remember way back in the day they had, you know, boys and girls clubs with, you know, the police might help coach teams or, you know, uh, referee games. I mean, you know, just, it, it, it doesn't necessarily have to be, you know, super strategic. There just needs to be, I think, interaction at um, a level that is sort of outside of the realm of crime occurring or, you know, uh, an emergency uh, underway. And I think that's a big step. Interacting with the faith community, I think, is another part of that, because a lot of times those are leaders in the community who have their finger on the pulse of, of people who are, you know, in crisis or at, at risk and could use additional help. You know, sometimes it's the parent in distress because the child's kind of, you know, wandered off the path and is starting to get into some more serious trouble. And the other level is schools. I, I think you want to have it so that it's not schools as police zones per se, but, you know, trying to get more interaction, involvement, information um, from school settings can make a big difference. Because a lot of times, 
you know, there's, there's sort of feuds or, you know, beefs, whatever you want to call them, that sort of, uh, you know, build up outside of a campus and then they sort of blow up, you know, in the school or vice versa. And the only way you can sort of see that coming and, and intervene, uh, it, you know, in a timely way is to begin information from all, all parts of the community, including the schools. Say a minute's worth or so about then what the the community can do to help close this gap. Uh, I mean, you talked about the law enforcement needing to touch base with the faith community and the different parts of the community, but what's the responsibility on the other end to keep motivating that and make that connection work? You know, I think you can invite them in. I, I'll give you an example. Uh, I was visiting a church um, a little while ago, and... Um, the pastor said, you know, we're going to have a, a day where we uh, take a look at survivors of, of uh, police excessive force, you know, police brutality. And I just happened to be sitting next to uh, the mother of a police officer. And she said, you know, we never do anything in our church to uh, offer support for police. They have tough jobs. They have tough days. People spit at them, people curse at them, people say awful things to them, people shoot at them. We ought to be supporting them, too. She had a point. You know, I think it's one of those things where, and this is part of the gulf that's grown over the years, I think, but but part of closing that up would be, well, maybe you do have a day where, you know, police officers are, you know, invited up or, you know, we're going to have a day for you guys just so that they get a chance to interact with the community, not in a hot situation, you know, not in a, not on the street, but, you know, in a classroom or, or uh, you know, a boardroom or a community room. Uh, and just, you know, have, give people a chance to sort of talk to each other and see things from, from each other's perspective. I, I think that could really be a big step in the right direction. My name is Mike Scott. I'm the director of the Center for Problem-Oriented Policing. Uh, it's an organization, nonprofit organization, that uh, provides uh, research-based information to police about effective ways to deal with uh, all of the different problems that they they confront in in the course of their work. What is supposed to be the relationship between the police and the public? Uh, I think a more proper understanding of what the police exist to do and have always existed to do. The police are one agency of government uh, among many that uh, share responsibility for um, promoting public safety. And the relationship that they ought to have with the public extends well beyond simply enforcing the law, especially the criminal law. It really is about helping the public and helping specific communities develop and maintain real safety and a sense of safety and security Within, within the various communities in which they live. And if you understand it that way, then the relationship uh, the police ought to have to the public is, is dramatically different. And how we would structure policing, how we would define the job of a police officer would be very different than it often gets defined. And so the police officer, uh, under that view of policing, would see his or her role as first establishing a relationship with particular segments of the community. Uh, and, and that's very much promoted by an organizational structure in which every police officer, especially every patrol officer, 
is assigned to a particular part of the community on a relatively long-term basis with a mandate to getting to know the people who live and work in that community, but with a specific objective of getting to know the particular conditions and crime problems and public safety issues that threaten that community. And, and building on that, the, the police officer would then uh, think along with the community about different ways of addressing those problems to develop uh, new approaches uh, that improve upon uh, approaches that are not working as well uh, to address those problems and to constantly monitor what, what progress is being made. This idea is not brand new. It's, uh, it's a set of ideas that have really been in and around policing for a good 40 years now. And I think much of the, the problem that we face is that we've lost sight of some of, of the gains that we've made over the last 40 years in terms of redefining the police function. And there's a great need to, to get the police back to this notion of police as community problem solvers and not exclusively as crime fighters or law enforcers. Now, Mike, have we in some ways outgrown the ability to do that in terms of our large urban centers or even our mid-sized cities to be able to assign uh, police uh, responsibilities in their communities that way? No, not at all. Uh, in fact, uh, many of the cities in which I've, I've lived and worked <clears throat> in, in the police field, including New York City, our biggest city, uh, we were doing this. We were doing this with patrol officers and communities in New York City in the 1980s. We were doing it with, uh, we were doing it in St. Louis and in, in uh, the, the center of the city uh, in the 1990s. We're doing it in, in Chicago, in Los Angeles, in Houston, in all of our major cities. There's evidence that we've been doing it in medium-sized cities, small cities, towns, villages, unincorporated areas. There really is no, no place in the country where this style of policing can't, uh, can't work in some modified form. Michael, Scott, why do you personally care about devoting so much of your time to thinking about this? Uh, policing is one of the two or three most important functions of government, any place, anywhere. It is to domestic affairs what the military is to international affairs. If one cares at all about uh, the strength of democracy, the fairness and justice uh, in society, then one has to care about policing. Police are ultimately uh, a reflection of the political desires of a community. But uh, it's also the case that professional police committed to democratic policing can in fact play a leadership role in demonstrating how even some of the most challenging, difficult, complex social problems that affect public safety can be effectively addressed without resorting to heavy-handed, draconian, uh, really anti-democratic uh, approaches to policing. If one cares at all about, uh, about justice and democracy, one has to care about police and policing. 
Well, and as I described to you, our program is about nonviolent conflict resolution. It strikes me that what you just said, you didn't say nonviolence. You used other words to describe things that they could avoid. But are the police also uh, ostensibly on the front lines of being able to model nonviolent conflict resolution, despite the fact that they have a gun on their hip? Well, I think especially because they have a gun on their hip. Uh, there's a general principle in professional policing uh, that, that holds that police ought to use the least amount of coercive force necessary to achieve their lawful objectives. The least amount of coercive force necessary to achieve lawful objectives. And so if you take that proposition seriously, then the police themselves ought constantly to be looking for ways to address public safety problems using the least amount of coercion necessary to do that. And that's some of what we have learned bit by bit, problem by problem, over the past 40 years, is that in fact there are choices to be made, whether we want our police to approach these crime problems uh, with a very heavy hand and a very uh, heavy use of coercive force, or if we want our police uh, to, to look for alternatives to the use of coercive force uh, in addressing these problems. And the police field is getting increasingly sophisticated uh, where they are committed to, to doing so, to finding uh, less coercive, less forceful ways of addressing even the most serious crime problems. You can hear more at peacetalksradio.com from Mike Scott, former police officer and director of the Center for Problem-Oriented Policing, or from Glenn Ivey, who was on just before Mr. Scott. Mr. Ivey is a lawyer and both a former federal prosecutor and state's attorney for Prince George's County in Maryland. Much more from all our guests talking about improving the relationship between police and our communities at our website, peacetalksradio.com. That's peacetalksradio.com for transcripts, pictures, links to other resources on this episode, as well as every program in our archive going back to 2002. Plus info on how you can support this particular independent program with a tax-deductible gift, including even a used vehicle donation. All the details at peacetalksradio.com. Support comes from folks like you, plus the McCune Charitable Foundation of New Mexico and KUNM at the University of New Mexico. Special thanks to Richard Wood. I'm Paul Ingalls. Thanks for listening to and for supporting Peace Talks Radio. (laughs) ¶¶